Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of portal hypertension found under the gastrointestinal section at MedBullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 46-year-old male presents to his primary care physician for a health maintenance exam. The patient talks about how he was struggling to cut back on his alcohol intake. The patient currently has no complaints, but feels as though he is gaining weight despite early satiety. On physical exam, the patient has mild scleral icterus. Gynecomastia is noted. The abdomen is distended with the fluid wave. Let's continue with an introduction to portal hypertension. Remember that this refers to an increase in portal blood flow resistance at the level of the sinusoids, which results in portal hypertension. There is hyperdynamic circulation, which increases the portal blood flow and leads to portal hypertension as well. This is mainly due to arterial splenic vasodilation, and this will lead to increased blood flow to the portal venous system. In terms of the etiology, this can be divided into prehepatic causes such as portal vein thrombosis, malignancy, and compression such as from pancreatic cancer, intrahepatic causes such as cirrhosis most commonly, as well as schistosomiasis and Wilson disease, or posthepatic causes such as Bud-Chiari syndrome, right-sided heart failure, and constrictive pericarditis. Moving on to the presentation, manifestations of portal hypertension may include jaundice, ascites, which is excess fluid accumulation in the peritoneal cavity, portosystemic shunting, remember that this is due to portal blood flow reversal, and there may be complications where capillary beds are shared between the systemic and portal circulation. For example, hemorrhoids may occur where the superior rectal and middle and inferior rectal vessels meet. Esophageal varices may occur where the left gastric vein and the tributaries of the azagous vein meet and can cause massive hematemesis, which can be a risk of death. And caput medusae at the umbilicus may occur where the paraumbilical veins and anterior abdominal wall veins meet. One may also note splenomegaly. This is secondary to congestions and can lead to hypersplenism, which may result in thrombocytopenia. One may also note hyperestrogenism, which is due to impairment in estrogen metabolism and may lead to sex hormone imbalance. This may present with gynecomastia, palmar erythema, spider angiomata, and testicular atrophy. In terms of further imaging, an upper endoscopy may be performed as well as a Doppler ultrasonography, and this can identify collateral vessels and alterations in the portal blood flow. In terms of further studies, the serum ascites albumin gradient that is 1.1 or greater can suggest a portal hypertension. In terms of treatment, remember that treatment is aimed at ameliorating the complications of portal hypertension. For example, if there are varices but no bleeding, then primary prophylaxis is with non-selective beta blockers, such as propranolol and natolol, which are preferred. The beta-1 blockade causes decreased cardiac output, and the beta-2 blockade causes splanchnic vasoconstriction. One may also perform endoscopic variceal ligation. If there is ascites, then one wants to decrease the acidic fluid and peripheral edema. This may be accomplished by stopping alcohol intake, restricting sodium, and treating with diuretics such as spironolactone and furosemide. Remember that before using furosemide, one should check for hypokalemia, and then add when hypokalemia is adequately corrected. Remember that if there is hypokalemia, 
This may result in renal ammonia production. One may also perform a large volume therapeutic paracentesis in those with tense ascites. And if there is spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, that means that there is an acidic fluid infection. A positive bacterial culture and or greater than 250 cells per millimeter cubed of absolute polymorphonuclear leukocyte count in the acidic fluid will be found. The acidic fluid is cultured first, and then broad-spectrum antibiotics such as cefotaxime are administered. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to portal hypertension, let's walk through some questions to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For the first question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 47-year-old man comes to the emergency department complaining of weight gain and abdominal discomfort. He states that over the past month, he has gained 10 pounds. This week, he began experiencing mild, diffuse abdominal discomfort. He denies nausea, vomiting, constipation, or diarrhea. The patient has not seen a physician in years and takes no medications. He is a truck driver. He states that he drinks a six-pack of beer per night. On physical exam, there is jaundice, hepatomegaly, and a positive fluid wave. An abdominal ultrasound reveals cirrhosis, portal vein dilation, and moderate ascites. He undergoes a paracentesis that relieves his symptoms. Fluid analysis demonstrates a serum albumin of 4.0 and acidic fluid that is yellow and has a leukocyte count of 100 with 50% neutrophils. The protein is 2.3 and the albumin is 1.9. A culture of the acidic fluid is pending. He is discharged and instructed to follow up with a gastroenterologist for an upper endoscopy. Upper endoscopy reveals multiple, small, non-bleeding esophageal varices. Which of the following is the next best step in management of the patient's condition? And the answer choices are Choice 1, atenolol Choice 2, ceftriaxone Choice 3, octreotide Choice 4, propranolol Or Choice 5, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt The best answer to this question is choice 4, propranolol. The patient is presenting with signs of portal hypertension due to cirrhosis complicated by transudative ascites and non-bleeding esophageal varices. Primary prophylaxis for esophageal varices is propranolol to prevent hemorrhage. Esophageal varices are a complication of portal hypertension. As blood flow through the liver is compromised, portosystemic anastomoses get utilized including the veins of the gastric fundus and esophagus, resulting in esophageal varices and gastric varices, the paraumbilicus, resulting in caput medusae, and the rectum, resulting in hemorrhoids or anal rectal varices. Patients with portal hypertension should undergo upper endoscopy to evaluate for esophageal varices. If these are present and non-bleeding, first-line pharmacologic therapy to prevent variceal hemorrhage is a non-selective beta blocker like propranolol or natolol. These inhibit beta-2 adrenergic receptors in the gastrointestinal tract resulting in splanchnic vasoconstriction and decreased portal hypertension and collateral blood flow. Another approach is endoscopic variceal ligation for medium to large varices. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. Atenolol is a selective beta blocker. Non-selective beta blockers should be used to prevent variceal bleeding. 
A helpful way to remember selective versus non-selective beta blockers is that beta blockers that start with the letters A through M are selective, and beta blockers that start with the letters N through Z are non-selective. Choice 2. Ceftriaxone is an antibiotic that can be given for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. This is ascites with greater than 250 granulocytes or a positive blood culture, or for prophylaxis for bleeding varices. This patient did not have signs of SBP or a GI bleed. Choice 3. Octreotide can be used in the acute management of a variceal bleed. Octreotide inhibits hormones that cause vasodilation in order to stop the hemorrhage. This patient did not have evidence of esophageal hemorrhage on upper endoscopy. Choice 5. Transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, or TIPS, is a procedure that may be indicated for a persistent or recurrent bleeding from esophageal varices. It is not indicated for prophylaxis of non-bleeding varices. Finally, a bullet summary. Non-selective beta blockers are primary prophylaxis to prevent hemorrhage of esophageal varices. For the second question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 56-year-old man recently diagnosed with cirrhosis secondary to alcohol use presents to the clinic for a follow-up evaluation. He states that he has abstained from alcohol and attends a support group regularly. He has not taken any new medications or encountered any sick contacts. The patient's blood pressure is 110 over 70. Pulse is 75 beats per minute and respirations are 15 breaths per minute. His physical exam is grossly unremarkable. He has brought a gastroduodenoscopy report for review, which reveals that the patient has small esophageal varices with red spots. What is the next best step to prevent bleeding? And the answer choices are, choice one, endoscopic sclerotherapy, choice two, ligation, choice three, metoprolol, choice four, natalol, or choice 5, repeat endoscopy. The best answer to this question is choice 4, natalol. This vignette tests prophylactic management of esophageal varices in a cirrhotic patient. Initiating a non-selective beta blocker is the next best step to prevent bleeding. Esophageal varices and cirrhosis develop due to elevated portal venous pressure. Upper endoscopy is performed to identify patients with varices that are at risk of bleeding, which can result in hemorrhage and death. Non-selective beta blockers such as propanolol and natalol block beta-adrenergic mesenteric vasodilation. This allows for unopposed alpha-adrenergic vasoconstriction, which causes decreased portal inflow. Beta blocker prophylaxis has been associated with lower bleeding rates, death due to bleeding, and death overall in cirrhotic patients. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. Endoscopic sclerotherapy is effective at treating esophageal varices, but has not been shown to confer morbidity or mortality benefit superior to beta-blocker prophylaxis or sham therapy. Choice 2. Endoscopic ligation is less invasive than sclerotherapy. However, no significant differences in hemorrhage or mortality was found when compared to beta-blocker prophylaxis. Choice 3. Metoprolol is a selective beta-1 blocker. Choice 5. Repeat endoscopy would be indicated if the patient had small varices with no red spots. Finally, a bullet summary. Patients with liver disease and esophageal varices 
should undergo non-selective beta-blocker prophylaxis to decrease risk of bleeding. For the third question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 56-year-old homeless male presents to a free clinic for a health evaluation. He states that he has not been seen by a physician in over 25 years, but finally decided to seek medical attention after he noticed recent chronic fatigue and weight gain. Upon questioning, he endorses drinking two handles of whiskey per day. On exam, the physician observes scleral icterus, spider nevi, caput medusae, and hemorrhoids. Which of the following findings would also be expected to be observed in this patient? And the answer choices are, choice one, a four hertz hand tremor, choice two, nystagmus, choice three, direct hyperbilirubinemia, choice four, microcytic anemia, or choice five, testicular atrophy. The best answer to this question is, Choice 5. Testicular atrophy. This patient is presenting with stigmata of chronic liver disease and cirrhosis, most likely secondary to his alcoholism. Hypogonadism resulting in testicular atrophy is one such stigmata observed in chronic liver disease. Chronic liver disease often leads to cirrhosis, diffuse fibrosis, and destruction of normal liver architecture. This often results from chronic alcohol use, viral hepatitis, biliary disease, and hemochromatosis. It produces stereotypic stigmata as a result of liver cell failure and portal hypertension. Signs of liver cell failure include scleroicterus, spider nevi, gynecomastia, hypogonadism, bleeding diathesis, asterixis, and anemia. Portal hypertension is the acute cause of ascites, esophageal varices, splenomegaly, caput medusae, and hemorrhoids. The publication by Starr and Rains reviews the diagnosis, management, and prevention of cirrhosis. They state cirrhosis is the 12th leading cause of death in the United States, and alcohol abuse and viral hepatitis are the most common causes of cirrhosis. Treating alcohol abuse, screening for viral hepatitis, and controlling risk factors for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are mechanisms by which the primary care physician can reduce the incidence of cirrhosis. The publication by Enoch and Goldman reviews the diagnosis and management of chronic alcoholism. They state that alcohol addiction is a lifelong disease with a relapsing remitting course. Because of the potentially serious implications of the diagnosis, assessment for alcoholism should be detailed. Alcoholism is treated by a variety of psychosocial methods with or without newly developed pharmacotherapies that may improve relapse rates. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. A 4 hertz hand tremor would be characteristic of Parkinson's disease. Choice 2. Nystagmus is seen in a variety of conditions, including multiple sclerosis and PCP intoxication. Choice 3. Cirrhosis due to alcohol abuse would be expected to show mildly elevated AST and ALT, usually in a 2 to 1 ratio. A direct hyperbilirubinemia would not be expected. Choice 4. Cirrhosis and chronic alcoholism would be expected to cause a macrocytic anemia as opposed to a microcytic anemia. That's all for this review about portal hypertension. We hope that was helpful. This is the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. As a reminder, 
you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the MedBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here, on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.